Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We stand at the dawn of a new golden age. Where others merely survive, we thrive. And while I have led your efforts, it has been by your own strength. Because yes, freedom is what we all work towards. We have confirmation that this is We do have coming in. Coming in. was Blue Boy with Grave Fission. Hey there friends, I'm Nuclear Yuki and welcome once again to a nuclear reading show. Today we're continuing on with KCAT's Fallout Equestria. Oh also, if you're enjoying what I'm bringing to the cold dark wasteland, don't be afraid to tell your friends about me or find me on Twitter as Nuclear Yuki. It's a big help. Oh, and as a bit of a disclaimer, since the gangs can be a bit feisty, Fallout is owned by Bethesda, and Hasbro made My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. With all that said and done, welcome, friends, to the Wasteland. Chapter 25. Generous Souls. Alone. I had given my possessions even my barding, to calamity. Night poppy seed had brought me soiled, filthy slave cloths to wrap myself in. Thick wrappings had gone around my right foreleg to hide my pit buck, complete with twigs and bloodstains to suggest my leg had been cruelly wounded. 
If Only Pony asked, I intended to tell them it had been run through with a piece of rebar. Then I had been shackled. As with the slavers before, Knight Poppy Seed had been unable to shackle me properly at the hoof thanks to my pit buck, so she had locked the manacles above my knees. I had floated myself into the cage of a slave wagon and bedded down in mouldy hay filled with small, itchy bugs. It had taken only minutes to become wretchedly uncomfortable. Between that and nearly getting fucked in the tail by a giant flaming Pinkie Pie the evening before, I had been deemed to look decently pathetic. I had been allowed to attach a few bobby pins to my rags, but I would have to hope I could find a screwdriver somewhere on the other side of the wall. Then, with worried goodbyes, my companions left me alone. I was to lay there and wait for a member of Red Eye's slavers who the Steel Rangers had sufficiently bribed, or perhaps ensured the cooperation of in a less wholesome way, to come and get the slave wagon. I'd forgotten what it felt like to be alone. I'd spent my whole precious life alone. I hadn't had any friends growing up, and my mother, as much as I loved her, wasn't the sort of parent a filly could feel together with. Alone is cold and dull and miserable. It is a void that aches to be filled, and the little hobbies and distractions that I'd turned to had never really filled that hole, because it was a hole that could only be filled with companionship. Growing up, the closest I'd come to that was music, the singing on the Stable 2 broadcast. At least with music, there was another pony involved who was trying to make a connection, and I could pretend that pony was trying to make a connection specifically with me, and not just any pony who was listening. The illusion was never perfect, and it couldn't be held beyond the song, but while the music was playing, the mirage of friendship helped protect me against the cold. Needless to say, it was the songs of Velvet Remedy which I had cherished the most. I'd even fallen in love, I think, with my dream of her. I still remembered the hurt when my ridiculous and unrealistic mental image of her was shattered by the real thing standing in a train car, a non-prisoner in a slaver town. And even then, I think, I still clung to little fragments of my dream remedy until the day she shot me. That said, I wouldn't have traded my very real friendship with the actual pony for anything, much less for a relationship with my two-dimensional daydream. What I had was better, far better, because it was real. When I left Stable 2, my life changed forever, and the most drastic change wasn't the vast open wasteland or the sickly sunlight that pushed its way through the clouds. It wasn't the horrors and the wickedness and cruelty I had seen, or the daunting amount of pain I had suffered, or even the growing river of pony blood drowning my hooves. The most drastic change was friendship, and it had started just a few days out of the stable with a pony named Calamity. Calamity was unlike any pony I had ever met. He was fearless and noble, and just in a way that I could only aspire to, and he cared about me in a way no pony, not even my mother, ever did. He was willing to stand by me, even when I was being foolish and wrong. Not that we never disagreed, because we did often enough, but he gave me the benefit of the doubt. He trusted me, and he was some pony I knew I could trust in return. I freely admit that I had been jealous when Calamity and Velvet Remedy started to gravitate towards each other, and in retrospect, I have to wonder, was my conviction that they were a couple already accurate, or a self-fulfilling prophecy? How foolish I was to feel that way. 
but friendship was, and is, still new to me. And I had many lessons to learn about it, and many, many more to go, if the sheer number of Spike's stories are to be believed. Only after I had come to accept their closeness, and take comfort in it, was my heart really open enough to embrace homage. I had friendship, but the void goes deeper than that. I wanted more than companionship. I yearned for love and physical intimacy. I will also admit that when Amage first opened the possibility, I was drawn to her out of desperation. But that changed. She changed that. Likewise, I would not blame a pony for thinking that our relationship had been fast and brief. But while it was true that I had not met her in coat and mane until Ten Pony Tower, I had gotten to know much of her before seeing her face to face, as she had gotten to know me. In truth, I've known Homage almost as long as I've known Calamity. True, I'd not known her deeply and personally until Tampony Tower, but who really knows their friends well in the first few weeks? And I can say safely that the connection we had built before meeting was laid on solid foundations. I can say this thanks in great part to the honesty that I realise Homage embodies. That Homage that I grew to know as DJ Pwn3 was, and is, the real homage. Not all of her, granted, and not without trappings, but real all the same. Homage knows me at my best, but has also seen me at my worst. And instead of being scared away, she has embraced me and let me in. She has held and comforted me, and she has done so much more, allowing me an intimacy that I had only daydreamed about before, and usually to my private shame. With homage, I didn't feel ashamed. Having seen the memories of Steel Hooves, a melancholy realisation crept into my thoughts. He was the only one of my companions who hasn't been in a similar relationship. Yet, unless Calamity and Velvet have managed to be up to things with a far greater degree of sneakiness and stealth than I attribute to either of them. Like me, he had a companion who he could trust to be open and honest with him. And like me, he chose to keep things from her. I'm quite sure he did not reveal to Applejack the murder he committed, whereas, in my case, I've kept from homage, well, another murder Steelhooves committed. Thinking on those things, I suddenly found the parallel downright creepy. Steelhooves once told me that I would learn he wasn't a better pony, which I'd certainly have seen is true, just like she did. And while I can only guess at what befell their relationship, I do know that he and Applejack were together the day the bombs fell. I must assume they at least worked at mending any damage his dark secrets had caused. I also knew that, ultimately, she had left him. She chose her family over him, and she left him behind. And he's been living with that abandonment for two hundred years. Alone. With an aching heart and a sense of unease... I found myself desperately needing to talk with Amage. With any luck, I would be able to do so as soon as my friends had the override installed. I wondered if I would be able to speak to her just by talking to the air. But from what I had heard, it seemed more likely that I would need to get to the station myself to have real communication with her. Either way, I was determined to come clean, for better or for worse. Unlike the hobbies and distractions of my lonely youth, Friendship really can fill the void enough for a pony to be happy. 
And while I wouldn't normally consider my experiences in the equestrian wasteland to be a happy one, I really have been happier out here than I ever was in Stable 2. Being with friends is a blanket against the cold, a bulwark that makes you stronger, a connection that makes you bigger. Without friends, I was exposed, weak and small. And, on an entirely unrelated note, itchy. Chain-link fencing crackled with energy, surrounding a barricaded outer gate. Guards watched with amusement as the slaver pulled my wagon up to the wall. Only one? A guard mare called out. She was heavily barded and wore a battle saddle bearing four combat shotguns. The sight made me cringe. A whole wagon for just one? Been snacking, Nash? The slaver pulling my wagon just grunted. I scratched at my neck with a hind hoof and tried not to wince every time the wagon jolted as it rolled over the broken, rocky streets. I unrealistically hoped that the slaves were given baths. And such a small one, too! A guard buck in similar barding called out. I noticed that I couldn't see any weapons on him, save for his horn and his hooves. I wondered if that made him less or more dangerous. If it wasn't a unicorn, I'd say toss it back in the lake. Itching badly, I really wished I could be tossed in a lake. It occurred to me, however, that this was not the first time a slaver had suggested unicorns were considered an extra valuable prize. Not entirely surprising, considering that the unicorns in Stable 2 were often expected to go into technical work, thanks to the fine manipulation our magic allowed. I wondered what work Red Eye was putting us to. I'd probably find out soon enough. While quadruple combat shotgun pony kept aim on me, her male counterpart threw a lever, killing the electric crackle of the chain-link fence. He hoofed a button, and a section of the fence began to roll open with considerable clatter. Quadruple combat shotgun pony continued to keep her battle saddle trained on me. A single unicorn shackled and caged, as did two snipers hidden within their steel bunker towers on either side of the wall's inner gate. The heads of patrol ponies could be seen walking the perimeter of the wall on a raised platform just behind it. Even knowing me, it felt like a ridiculous amount of overkill. A griffin arced overhead, checking out the latest arrival, and flew away laughing. By the you-know-who, Nash, when I first saw this one, I thought you bucked your horseshoes and actually brought in a filly. The mare snickered making me feel even smaller. I was thinking maybe I ought to blow your head off before Stern got a hold of you. Nash, my chauffeur, merely grunted again. What's this? The guard buck asked, peering in at me. His horn glowed and a jagged, rusty spear jutted between the bars at me. I cringed back. The unicorn frowned at me and tipped the spear so the head of it caught on the blood-soaked wrapping around my pit buck and pulled it away. Crap! I wasn't even in the gate and the plan was falling apart. Oh, he said with a smiling grunt. You think you're a clever pony, don't you? He gave me a cruel leer. Let's see how clever you feel inside. Inside? Did he intend to rape me? I wondered with a shot of panic. Or just let me in through the gate? The guard mare shot him a look and then gave him a cruel laugh. Oh, please do it! Hell here! Let me help hold her down! She gave her companion an evil smirk. Fifty minutes of fun! If that! You'd be scratching at the hay bugs biting your sheath for a week! 
I felt suddenly thankful for the infested hay. The buck backed up with a fearful look, then scowled at the mare. You'd really enjoy that, wouldn't you? More than life itself! What a disgusting couple. Bah! He hit the button to close the outer gate and waved a hoof towards the sniper ponies. Let it through! He gave me one more look, this one barely containing revulsion. His eyes moved to my pit buck, now partially visible through the wrappings. Oh, tag her to go see Doc Slaughter. She's got one of them leg terminals that are a bitch to get off. For a pony who had been so sorely disappointed that she had a pit buck for a cutie mark, I was remarkably terrified at the thought that I might lose it. As best I could pass through the buck's attitude, these slavers had seen pit bucks before and had ways to remove them. The buck threw the lever, and the fence around us once again crackled and hummed. With a rending grind, the huge metal inner gate of the wall began to lower on massive chains. A drawbridge, complete with moat on the inner side of the wall. My pit buck began to click urgently as it picked up radiation seeping out of the sludge. The wall was clearly meant to keep any pony from getting out, as much as prevent ponies from getting in. Beyond... I got my first glimpse of the inner city Philadelphia. Slave masters stood guard over mesh-covered work pits, wearing barding and gas masks, pointing weapons down to where poor ponies laboured beyond the point of exhaustion. I couldn't tell what work they were doing, but I could tell they were filthy, sick and trembling. A chimney rose out of the nearest work pit. Hellish red-tinted exhaust poured out of it. I gagged on the stench of unwashed ponies and noxious fumes. A swathe of bright yellow and green fluttered around the chimney before perching on a nearby pile of rubble. Pyolite! She cocked her head at me. I was not alone. Behold! Called out the voice of Red Eye. We stand on the threshold of a new dawn. With every factory we recover, every mill we rebuild... We move one big step forward towards an equestria where our children can live in the safety and comfort of modern cities, not grovel in the dilapidated ruins of the past. With the stone and glass and steel forged by these, we can rebuild the homes and towers and lanes of mass transportation that will bestow freedom and prosperity upon generations to come. This, my children, is the very last generation that needs to cringe in caves and scramble for 200-year-old scraps of food. The Philadelphia broadcast poured out of speakers everywhere. The messages and music were non-stop, the constant companion of both slave masters and slaves. Nash pulled the wagon past several more work pits before drawing to a stop in what had once been a chariot lot. I coughed. My pit buck was not shy about informing me that the gas pouring out of the work pit smokestacks was poisonous. The guards had gas masks, but they apparently couldn't spare any for the slaves. I trembled with anger. The rate of attrition here must be unconscionable. The lot was full of cage wagons, most of them recently emptied by other wagon pullers who were amassing slaves in an open area of the pavement. The gate I had come through was not the only one and I was not the only new arrival. Nash opened my cage and stuck his head in, biting on the chain between my shackles and hauling me roughly out. I was dragged into a throng of suffering ponies, 
each of whom had clearly been through weeks of torment before even getting here. A large black griffin in dark grey talon barding landed on the roof adjacent to the chariot lot and turned her white feathered head to scowl at us. Above her head rose a banner that fluttered in the wind, the red-eye flag. She had a whip curled under one wing and an anti-machine rifle strapped to her back. The work is hard, yes. Red-Eye's voice continued out of the nearest speaker as the griffin above scanned the miserable group of ponies beneath her. But only through the generous gift of our efforts can our children and our children's children have a better world. We must selflessly give all we can so that a new Equestria may rise, and that is not an easy thing to ask. Honestly, Red-Eye, I don't see much asking going on. Tribals care only about their own small groups, unable or unwilling to view a larger picture. Raiders and steel rangers are the epitome of selfishness, caring only for their own base desires and outdated codes, taking what they want from the rest of us and giving nothing back. But here, today, every day, we give back. We create where others know only how to tear down. We build. And that, my children, is how we pave the way for... One of the other wagon pullers shouted at us, making many ponies cringe, and one actually burst into tears. Make yourselves presentable, you worthless mules! The griffin's expression suddenly turned from something resembling mild contempt to cold anger. She drew the massive anti-machine rifle faster than I would have thought possible. The report of the gun was like the righteous anger of Luna. The wagon puller was ripped in two, the bullet punching through the asphalt and burying itself deep in the ground. A few of the ponies screamed. A magenta mare with an orange mane began backpedalling, trying to keep her hooves out of the spreading pool of blood. Her terror-stricken face splattered with what looked like part of the dead slaver's stomach lining. We are not animals. We are not zebras. We are ponies. We have a better nature and a higher calling. We know that the road is hard, and yet we stand and face the challenge. We know that many of us suffer and perish and never taste the sweet fruits of our labor. But out of generosity and hope, we give ourselves anyway so that others may know a better future, because that future is worth any sacrifice. And yes, the new Equestria does demand sacrifice. Okay, but pony sacrifices? Red Eye's speech ended. The music began again, uplifting and regal. The griffin looked not at us, but at the cowering slavers. You do not interrupt! when Red Eye is talking. She then turned to us. My name is Stern, the griffin stated, looking down on her new slaves. And this is my town. You are workers, Stern informed us as she paced along the rooftop above. You work towards the building of a brighter tomorrow towards the new Equestria, which will be populated by the Unity. Your work is the gift that you give to the future, 
and you can either give it willingly, or Red Eye will give it for you. I found myself conflicted. I seethed at the treatment of the slave ponies, which amounted to nothing short of slow and torturous murder. And yet, I understood Red Eye's goal. Maybe not all of it. The whole unity thing was getting downright creepy. But the progress, the striving to make the world a better place at any cost. The same drive had left me flank deep in blood, and I was not apologetic for it. Red Eye will put you to work doing things we probably should be working towards anyway, although by choice and in safer conditions. Me, I'll put a bullet through your head if you're a raping, murdering blight on pony kind. In both cases, we decided the ponies who didn't choose to live their lives the right way had forfeited their right to live freely, if at all. There was a difference. There was a line between Red Eye and me. It wasn't as thick as I would have liked. Even so, it didn't change the pain I was seeing and hearing all around me, and that these horrors had to stop. But most of you don't really care about the future, do you? I can see it in your eyes. You don't give a crap about other ponies. You just care about your freedom. Well then, listen closely. Because I'm going to tell you how to free yourselves. Stern said, her voice gruff with disgust and conviction. Part of me wanted to cry out that I did care, but a much stronger part of me listened intently. Unless I could find a screwdriver and an unguarded place to hide... This might be my best chance. You earn it! Of course you do. But Stern was quick to expound on that concept. You can toil in the mills and the factories and the workhouses until you drop. Or you can volunteer for the more dangerous jobs. Those who do are rewarded. And Red Eye is a very generous stallion. He gives you three options. The griffin held up three razor-sharp talons and began ticking them down. You can choose to work on a stable recovery team. There are a lot of stables in the Philadelphia area, each rich in resources. But stables tend to be dangerous. They often have their own security, or their own unique dangers. I shuddered, feeling a fresh wave of fury. The griffin scowled, and of course... There are the Steel Rangers, who are also after the same prizes. And before you start getting any wrong ideas, let me warn you. The Steel Rangers have adopted a slaughter-first attitude towards anyone that stands in their way of reclaiming old Stabletech property for themselves. They will slaughter you just as quickly as they will slaughter us. And in those rare cases where the Stables have still living residents, they usually slaughter them too. At least Red Eye gives them the same options he gives you. My eyes went wide, my jaw dropping. Luna raped them with her horn. You work two years on a stable recovery team and survive, and Red Eye promises you freedom. You'll be tagged, and will be allowed to live whatever life you choose. The Griffin gave a knowing smirk. So long as you don't decide to become a bother. Two years? That was not an option. But I wasn't really thinking about that. I was thinking about how Blueberry Sabre and I were going to have some very, very harsh words. I was already considering what ammo to use as punctuation. Curling her second claw, Stern continued, 
You can work in the Philadelphia Crater. Red Eye has need of radioactive materials, and that crater is a treasure trove of them. If Flubery Sabre was to be believed, and it would have been stupid for her to lie about my objectives, then I knew why Red Eye was mining the crater. He needed material for his rad engines, but working at Ground Zero for a mega spell strike. Even in radiation protective barding, that was a death sentence. Red Eye has stated that any pony who works for six months' work of full-time work days in the Philadelphia crater will be treated for radiation sickness and freed. A falsely kind smile crossed her beak. But since he is such a charitable stallion, Red Eye has recently reduced it to only four months. I suspected most ponies suffered fatal poisoning within three. Your third option, Stern informed us, holding up the remaining talon, is to fight in the pit. The pit is arena combat, pony against pony. Each event has six rounds, and there's usually an event once every week. More if Red Eye himself graces us with his presence. The Griffin stared down at us, assessing the pathetic herd of new slaves. If you survive six consecutive events, not only do you gain your beloved freedom, you gain an honoured place in Red Eye's army. She stood up tall, glowering. But frankly, none of you lot look worthy of such an honour. The black-bodied Griffin snorted. Still, I am honour-bound to give you the option. Just try not to make it too easy for your opponent if you do. Then, scowling yet again at us, she warned. There are ways to earn your freedom, but there are two other ways to gain it. You may, at any time, choose to join the Unity. If you do, your fate will be in the hooves of the goddess. She said the word as if it was distasteful. Or, of course, you can gain freedom through death. Try anything stupid. Try to rebel, try to fight, try to run... Any of those are fine ways to die horribly. Stern fixed us all with a glare. But that is all they are. Welcome to the Philadelphia Fun Farm! A weathered, oversized image of Pinkie Pie's head and forehooves peeked over the top of the arched, wrought iron gateway. Beyond lay the decaying ruins of what once had been a massive amusement park... I remembered it from the poster in Steelhoof's shack. Everything the Grand Galloping Gala should have been, every day, forever. We were herded through the gateway. A fair bulk of the old amusement park had been converted into the slaves' quarters. I'd been assigned a straw mat somewhere in an enclosure where ponies once galloped around in mock-ups of plough wagons, ramming each other for fun. Being new, I didn't rate four walls, only a roof, and I was told to be glad for that. The rain in Philadelphia, they warned me, burned. On the path up to the gateway, I had spotted slaves harnessed to actual plough wagons, pushing mounds of rubble as they pulled a chariot behind them, carrying the slave master pony who whipped them if they weren't going fast enough, or if the slave master liked the sounds the poor pony made when struck brutally with the lash, or if she was just bored. I wondered if any of those tortured ponies spent their nights sleeping in the bumper plough pit. Sometimes irony sucked. Once, colts and fillies would drag their parents from miles around to romp and play in the silly rides and spectacles of the Philadelphia Fun Farm. 
Now, it was a monstrous monument to slavery and death, wrapped in garish, peeling paint. Pinkie Pie would not approve. Above us, three Pinkie Pie balloons floated, in constant orbit over the decayed amusement park. One moved freely, the other two were anchored, one apiece, to the two tallest buildings still standing within the curtain of the wall. The first was leashed to an old hotel, beaten but unbroken, which towered just a few blocks beyond the eastern edge of the Philadelphia Fun Farm. The huge lettering on the 20th floor balcony was clearly rusted away and had long ago lost its lighting, but even without it, I would have recognised the Alpha Omega Hotel from its picture in that old news article I'd seen a couple days ago. The second Pinkie Pie balloon was bound to a building rising out of the fun farm itself. It was clearly stylized as a barn, looking like nothing so much of a colossal version of the old building on Sweet Apple Acres. The first floors were covered in galley-coloured murals and fairy tale characters, most of which had slid from the precipice of childlike frivolity into the valley of disturbing imagery. The roller coaster that looped all about the amusement park actually passed through the building on the sixth floor. A huge radio tower jutted up from the top, modified to look like a comically oversized weather vane. I realised I was looking at the Philadelphia hub for the Ministry of Morale. I should have known. Pinkie Pie and her ministry had created the SpriteBots. The source of the SpriteBots broadcast had to be a ministry hub somewhere. It wasn't powerful enough to reach all the way to Manhattan, but with each SpriteBot rebroadcasting the signal, the Ministry of Morale's reach had been effectively infinite. When Radeye had taken the hub, he had simply added his sermons to the playlist. The music itself was the same songs that the Ministry of Morale had been broadcasting since before the war. As if mocking me for my revelation, the plucky harpsichord number playing over the speakers suffered a sudden influx of lyrics. You gotta share, you gotta care, it's the right thing to do. I really, really wanted a gun. Oh look! called out a blood-red mare, whose dark green mane was done up in spikes. She was lounging on the spectator railing of the bumper plough arena. Fresh meat! The slave master ponies walking with us took their leave. Nash gave me a parting look that I just couldn't interpret. Then we were alone with the other slaves. Many paid us no mind. Most that even spared us a glance did so with sad, resigned expressions. I felt sickened at the sight of several of them. Many were shedding their manes and coats, revealing boils or discoloured flesh beneath, or suffered from withered limbs or slowing facial features, the slowly dying victims of radiation poisoning. And then there were the bullies. The blood-red mare slid from the railing and stalked towards us. Listen up, my little grubworms! She barked. Her cutie mark looked like an eyeball on a pike. I shuddered wondering just how you end up getting that as a cutie mark. Blueberry Sabre had warned me that I might have more to fear from the inmates than the guards. Another pony joined her, a hulking, piss-coloured male, with an ugly scar and the cutie mark of a very angry yellow flower. I got the absurd feeling that the flower wanted to kill me. The school in Stable 2 had bullies. These ponies reminded me of them. No matter how powerless we all were, they could find power by making the rest of us even more miserable. It was contemptible at best. With every pony suffering, I felt it was vile that some of the slaves themselves would go out of their way to make it worse for the others. I had learned that the best way to gain strength was through friendship. Shouldn't we all be working together? 
but this was faster and easier for the selfish. I'm blood, the appropriately coloured mare with the spiked mane announced. Then, introducing the over-muscled buck, and this is death. The lug stared at us, his eyes lingering on the mares. I know y'all just heard Stern's big spiel about how Philadelphia is her town, Blood said, which I bet she wouldn't have dared if the griffin was anywhere nearby. Well, the bumper plow pit is our domain. What a glorious empire you have there. I snucked under my breath before I could stop myself. Blood looked like she'd been slapped. Excuse me? She trotted up, eyes narrowing. Did you just talk? Because it sounded like you talked. I don't remember asking you to. Why couldn't I keep my mouth shut? Well, at least maybe if she kicked the crap out of me, she'd manage to crush all the biting bugs in my coat while she was at it. Then again, maybe it was a good thing that I'd gotten her attention. If I became the bully's new chew toy, then that would spare the other slaves the least sum of their attentions. I'd faced a dragon. I could take the crap these two could dish. Okay, I ran away from the dragon, but that's just getting nitpicky. Well, did you just talk? Blood demanded, sticking her snout against mine. She had to lower her head a little to do so, something I could see she enjoyed. My small stature made me a particularly appealing target. I I just said, what a glorious empire you have. You know, with the crumbling amusement park rides. I stammered, cringing back. You must be so, so proud. Her eyes widened. Oh, you are begging me to mess you up. She lifted a hoof and brought it down on the chain of my manacles, driving my face into the dirt. Okay, Philly. This is life from now on. You speak when I tell you to speak. You lick when I tell you to lick. And you give me half your food rations every night. And maybe, just maybe, I'll keep you for myself, rather than letting Daff here have you every lunar damn night until he splits you in two. I looked up at her, putting on a pitiful expression. Daff! She called back to the piss-coloured brute. Fuck her up bad! The lumbering bucket approached me with a nasty grin. <laughs> with pleasure. He spun and kicked. Hard. Pain exploded through my breast. I found myself flying back through the air. I crashed through the rotted remains of what had once been a hot dog stand, with a picture of Pinkie Pie slathering on the mustard. I was struggling to get onto my feet when he slammed into me at a full gallop, sending me sprawling. I thought I heard a rib crack. Breathing was becoming painful. The buck trotted up to me as I fought to catch my breath and reared up. Without armour, I was afraid he'd break my back. So I twisted. He compensated, his hooves coming down into my stomach, knocking any wind I had out of me. I coughed, tasting blood. The huge buck positioned himself over me. My horn glowed softly as I wrapped a very tender part of him in a telekinetic sheath and gave him a warning squeeze. Daff stopped abruptly. Here's the deal, I whispered, half moaning in pain. You decide I'm not worthy of your attentions. That way, you get to save face. And in return, I don't show you just how good I am at this particular trick. I squeezed a little harder and the buck jolted with pain, sweating now. And you get to keep yourself to yourself and away from all the other slaves or the deal's off. 
a slight bit tighter, and Daph nodded favorently, tears spilling from his eyes as he tried not to scream. Dill! I asked, though I knew he had already agreed as I gave the telekinetic field a slight twist. His reaction was utterly worth it. Good! I growled, my mouth tasting of warm copper. I released him, dropping my head back as my vision swam. I needed a medical pony. I needed Velvet Remedy. Shaking himself, Daph made a show of staring me up and down, then dismissing me with a huff. Fuck that, he said too loudly. She's so tiny, it'd be like fucking a kid. He turned around. Blood was looking at him with one eye narrowed in disbelief. Daph glanced back over his shoulder at me, snorted, apparently deciding what he could and couldn't get away with. He drove his right hind hoof back with a gruesomely hard half-buck that landed directly between my hind legs, then trotted away, basking in the blood-coloured mare's obvious appeal. I'd never screamed so hard in my life. I have walked through the streets of Philadelphia, cleared of rubble, and seen the steel mill producing steel, the textiles mill producing cloth, and the power plant producing power. Red-Eye's voice sounded proud through the tiny speakers on steel poles that jutted into the ruddy evening air. It is a start, but such a glorious start, and we owe it all to each other. What is this? I asked, half whimpering, as a bowl of indescribable mushy stuff was shoved in front of my nose. The smell made my deeply bruised stomach convulse in reaction. Oatmeal. The slave pony claimed flatly scooping up a bowl full of the same discoloured glop for the next pony. Oatmeal? Are you crazy? I stared in disbelief. This doesn't look anything like oatmeal, or smell. I added as another portion of the muck sloughed from ladle to bowl. Sound! I gave half of the oatmeal to blood, feeling like I was the one being cruel. Then I limped around until I found another pony who had been bullied out of his chair and gave him the rest. I was too much pain in tender places, including my stomach, to attempt eating anyway. In turn, he gave me very depressing advice on continued existence as a worker in Philadelphia. Don't choose the crater. Most ponies who go there don't live even three months, much less four. Don't choose the pit. You'll have to survive as many as 36 battles against other slaves to make it, and the battles were always to the death. I moaned at that. I couldn't see myself taking the life of another slave. Well, maybe blood and daff, but not the innocent ones. He himself worked in the scrapyards, using a tool he called an auto-axe to cut apart chariots and other large hunks of metal for melting down in the steel mill. It was dangerous work, and they were kept under supervision by guards in high places. But there weren't many whips. No slave master was going to get into a scrapyard with a slave wielding a spinning blade, magically enchanted to easily slash through metal. He regaled me with the many ways to die in Philadelphia. One of the least pleasant was the work pits I had seen on the way in. But fortunately, he said, those are reserved for ponies who try to escape, or worse, sabotage Red Eye's work. What are they? Philadelphia has a bit of a Paris bribe problem. The pony told me as he ate the remainder of my glop. Apparently, there was a massive infestation maybe three, four decades before the mega spells. Supposedly they wiped it all out, but the Paris sprites are really persistent. 
He licked the bowl while I tried not to gag. Couple years back, Red-Eye's bucks were blasting their way into one of the stables was pretty close to the crater, and they cleared open a pocket full of the damn things, all irradiated to hell, nastier than ever. Bloat sprites? I asked. He shook his head. Nah, bloat sprites is what happens to the parasprites that get themselves tainted. Big and mean. Don't tend to reproduce, and that's a blessing. Trust me on that. He looked at me gravely. These buggers are irradiated. Big difference. So, what do they do? Same thing they've always done. Eat, spit out more. The pony fixed me with a stare. Only now, they're carnivorous. They eat ponies? Oh, Celestia. And those chimneys? The buck cocked his head. Well, that's where we incinerate the nests they find. Only to make sure they stop reproducing is to kill them with fire. He scowled. Problem is, sometimes there are ones deep in the nests that don't get properly cooked by the exterminators. They wake up from the heat, fly out. The mesh over the work pits makes sure they don't get too far, and one of the guards always has a flamethrower. Especially after that one mare had one of their buggers fly into her throat. They ate her from the inside out. Pure nightmare fuel. I really wished I could unhear that. But as bad as that was... On the top of his list to die was Unity. I know what that bastard Red-Eye says, but I've known plenty of ponies who volunteered for Unity, and not one of them ever came back. He confided in me. According to some ponies, goddess, whatever that's supposed to be, is turning them into those big alicorn critters we sometimes see hereabouts. But if that was true, then I figured there would be a lot more of them. And you'd think one would bother to come back and say hello to old friends, being as they can fly and all. I didn't think it helpful to tell him that there were probably more of them than he thought. My mind was already processing the other information. The pseudo-goddesses had no cutie marks, and were at least guided through a telepathic source. My mind reeled at the possibility that the transformation removed their individuality and sense of self completely. Doing that to a pony would be worse than murder. Night was chilly, and I had no blanket. I lay on the rat-chewed old mat which had been bed to the slaves before me, most of whom were probably dead now. The mat was so worn, it felt harder than the cement beneath it, and so stained I didn't really want to touch it. But it was all I had. My body was badly bruised, and it still ached to breathe. My rib had been cracked, but thankfully not broken. I tried wholeheartedly to ignore the worst of the lower pain, Part of me wanted to kill Daff as painfully and bloodily as possible. Part of me wanted to curl up and cry. I fought down both. Considering what I did and threatened to do to the piss-coloured bastard, I think part of me wanted to show that I could take what I was willing to dish out. Mostly, though, I had told him he could save face, and as much as I hated it, I had to acknowledge that is exactly what he did. The sky above was black with reflected tinges of orange and red, with the fall of night, all the forges and fires and other glowing things were more pronounced, giving the Philadelphia ruins an infernal cast. The worst was the subtle red tinge to the air that became a luminescent glow within the massive pit where the megaspell-carrying missile had struck, missing the massive industrial sectors of the city to find heart in the civilian housing. Darkness never truly fell in the core of the Philadelphia crater. 
A gust of wind brought a deeper chill and a choking, acrid smell with it from somewhere deeper in Philadelphia. A few of the other slaves coughed in their sleep. I shivered and tried to breathe without inhaling. I missed my friends. I wonder if they were okay. In my mind, I had begun playing through all the mistakes I had made, all the ways my plan could have gone wrong. Somewhere not far away, I caught sight of a small burst of green flame. Getting up, I slipped quickly out, bringing up my eyes forward sparkle to help me find the Balefire Phoenix. My heart felt thankful for the company as I spotted her perched on a sign shaped like a smiling Pinkie Pie holding up a hoof. You must be this tall to ride the Fun Farm wheel! Behind her, the massive iron structure of the wheel rose above part of the park like a mechanical eye, watching us balefully. Pyolite hooted musically at me. Thank you! I told her earnestly. I didn't think I could make it through this trial alone. I considered asking her questions or requesting that she could ferry a message to Velvet Remedy, or half a dozen other things that I dismissed in turn. Instead, I chose to just sit there, resting my head against the two-dimensional Pinkie Pie, and enjoying her company. Well, let's put you to work, Mr Shiny said, looking me over. Mr Shiny was the slave master pony in charge of assigning work to new slaves and I thought he had a deceptively kindly voice. I see you've got a pip-buck, and you should be tagged for a visit to Dr. Slaughter, but I figure we can hold off on that. He gave me a smile that seemed personable, but had no real warmth. What do you say we put that thing to use instead? I was still terribly sore, and walked with a slight limp, but he didn't seem to notice, or at least not care. I was sure he'd put ponies to work who were in much worse shape. What do I have to do? Well, there's a building in town that's been infested with parasprites. But this time, we can't just go in with flamethrowers, so we could use a pony with a pip-buck. Mr Shiny explained. That thing can spot targets for you, right? We'll send you in there with an environmental barding and with a low-powered magical energy gun. Shoot the damn things until they're piles of ash. How many are there? The fretful nightmares of the night before replayed themselves in my mind. Shouldn't be more than fifty. They haven't had anything to snack on since the infestation was discovered. Poor Whitetail. Within half an hour, he had me equipped and ready to go, except for ammo. I'd get that after I entered the building. They'd shove it in through a mail slot. Beams of bright magenta magical energy lanced through the air at me from the security turret in the hallway ceiling. One of the blasts struck my environmental suit, melting a hole the size of a hoof just below my cuter mark and burning my flesh underneath. As I threw myself behind a desk, I hoped it wouldn't scar like the slash on my neck. The terminal on the desk glowed softly, the same sickly pale green that almost all of them did. I hid myself behind it as I began to hack the system. It took me a moment... The terminal security was pathetic, and I was in luck. The terminal could shut down the turrets. The turret let loose another barrage of pink energy. Several lancing bolts struck the backside of the terminal. It exploded in my face with a blast of sparks. I would have been permanently blinded, if not outright killed, had the environmental suit not included a gas mask and heavy goggles. I cringed back behind the desk and considered my options. Until now... The bug hunt was more frustrating than dangerous. 
barging had made me effectively immune to the parasprites, and I'd become so practised in the art of stealth that I could sneak up right behind one before the half-blind things even spotted me. Which was good, since I have almost no skill with magical energy weapons, even at close range, even with sats. I missed as often as I hit. As the turret spewed out another barrage, a little yellow parasprite flew towards me, drawn by the smell of my burned flesh. I slipped into sats as it drew close, aiming the laser and firing. I hit it with the third shot, and it disintegrated in a flash of turquoise ash. I dropped the targeting spell, then kicked it back up a second later to help me take down two more parasprites, one of which was approximately the colour of dead flesh. I think I'm in trouble! I checked the magical spark pack. Those second two had taken me five shots to vaporise. Better, but still not good. According to my Pitbuck's initial scan, there were 52 Parasprites in the building that I had to wipe out, and I'd just killed Parasprites numbered 19 through 21. That left 31 more to go, most of which I knew were swarming around the building's factory floor, an area I'd been avoiding, choosing to clear out the rest of the building first. Only now, they smelled flesh. I had seven shots left. Really in trouble! The turret poured out even more magical energy, trying to strike me down. Not smart enough to realise there was a whole big metal desk in the way. The desk was getting warm to the touch. If I didn't find more ammo in this place, or, even better, another weapon, I opened the desk, just to check. Bottle caps. Three of them. I let out a scream of frustration. I looked around, spotting a door marked maintenance nearby. Wrapping the desk in a field of levitation, I carried it alongside me as a shield while I dashed for the door. It was locked. I still didn't have a screwdriver. Looking towards the heavens... If either of you are actually up there, I'm really, really sorry for doubting. Really sorry. I apologise. Now, could you please send me a break? The turret fired again. The desk was no longer just warm. It was beginning to radiate heat. Three more parasprites flew into the room, drawn to my smell. Well then, fuck you too! Both of you! I shouted upwards. Go lick each other's... I slid into sats and sent a flurry of targeting spell guided shots at the parasprites. Two turned to ash. The third was struck, falling to the floor but not dying. The other shots missed. Now I was out. I panted, my rib injury burning and making it hard to breathe. Damn it! The turret fired again. The desk was now glowing. In frustration, I snapped. You want this so much? Here, take it! Keeping the desk between me and the turret, I floated it up to the offending machine and slammed it over and over until it stopped working with a crunch. Then I floated it past me the other way, flipping it over and dropping the glowing metal surface on the wounded blue bug. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I managed to close myself in an office above the building's main floor. The hallway that the turret had been protecting had led to this room, the equivalent of an overmare's office. There was a small door on one side that probably led to a closet and a massive plate glass window that looked out over the main work area. I stared out of one of the windows at the massive cute, colourful predators swarming between the catwalks above and below the printing presses below. Same aesthetic, I noted dourly. It was like the world before had a hard-on for industrial accidents. I also understood why going in with flamethrowers was not so much an option. This building was a printing house, and it was full of a lot of books, posters, a veritable cornucopia of fuel for an out-of-control fire. Such a fire would probably destroy the very things I was sure Red Eye was after, the presses. I had to applaud the stallion. He had power, steel, textiles, and now he was working on bringing back mass publication. As far as I could tell, the only book that had been written and distributed on any significant scale since the apocalypse was the Wasteland Survival Guide. Getting this place running would be a major step forward. The schools he was promising suddenly began to look real. I spotted several more automated turrets covering the main work floor. Damn things ignored the bugs, but I knew that they'd attack if I so much as stepped a hoof in that room. I was in no shape to deal with that many parasprites, much less the damn turrets. The room had a desk with a still-functioning terminal. I sat down and began to hack, hoping that I could turn off any other turrets from here. The password, interestingly, was Generous Souls. Welcome to the Ministry of Image, Philadelphia Hub, Miss Periwinkle. How are you this fine morning? It has been 202 years, 37 days, 1 hour and 13 minutes since your last login. Would you like to check your messages? Wait, this was a hub? But there wasn't anything here. It was a small building. Little more than a print shop. There was nothing here. That made no sense. This wasn't a tower. It was two stories tall. And I'd seen enough of the building to be pretty sure it didn't have secret sublevels. There weren't many offices. Nothing more than what would be expected from a small publishing house. I got up and started looking around. There were posters on the walls of the office. Many more visible down on the printing floor below. I'd seen most of them before. Everything from the progress posters of the Ministry of Wartime Technology to the image of Twilight Sparkle above the words, Reading is Magic. The poster I'd seen in the Ponyville Library, only without the disfiguring graffiti. I glanced back to the terminal and noticed something else. On the desk was an old album. I opened it and began magically flipping through the pages, all full of collected scraps, old newspaper articles, Flyers, public notifications, most were decayed beyond readability. Of those that weren't, many were familiar. The clinic warning about wartime stress disorder, for example. One of the barely readable newspaper articles caught my eye. Dragon over Hoofington. 
The Shadowbolts, led by Rainbow Dash, engaged the Dragon Brimstone over the skies of Hoofington last weekend, as Zebra forces managed to strike their deepest into Equestria in the war's 13 years' history. All the rumours that the Zebras have enlisted the aid of dragons native to their homeland have been confirmed. Princess Luna vows to expand Equestria's Pegasus. The rest was supposedly continued on another page. The rest of this was a picture of Rainbow Dash standing proudly on the head of the fallen monster. It was the sort of image that would have branded Rainbow Dash as a national hero in the minds of ponies for generations. I closed the book and looked back to the screen, and I began to understand. I thought back to the Pinkie Pie poster that first alerted me to the existence of the Ministries. If I had been asked, I would have said that the Ministry of Morale had been the first one I had seen. I would have been wrong. The Ministry of Image was the first one I had seen. Only it hadn't gone by that name. It almost never went by that name. At least not externally. In fact, I suspected that the principles of proper pony speech were supposed to be an internal document. The Ministry of Image didn't seem to do projects of its own. It worked in service to the other ministries. It created their materials, their books, their posters, their flyers, and in one case, even their armour. Every poster associated with one of the other ministries. Hell, probably every time I had seen or heard anything from any of them, I was seeing the Ministry of Image. The invisible ministry that was everywhere. I downloaded Miss Periwinkle's messages into my pit buck for later perusal, then moved on to the more pressing task of dealing with the turrets. I had hoped I could turn off the turrets through the terminal in what I considered the Overmare's office, but the terminal had allowed me to do one better. It allowed me to reprogram the turrets to wipe out the Paris Brights. I crouched behind the desk, listening to the barrage of turret fire kill the main floor of the MI hub. The Paris Bright kill count on my pit buck had shot up to 39, I was now only beginning to slow. I realised I would have to hunt down the last ones, the ones in rooms and spaces the turrets didn't cover. But suddenly, my job was a lot easier. My luck just kept improving. There was a bathroom off to the side of this office. The toilet water made my pit buck freak, but the sink was completely non-functional. A plumber pony had been working on it when the mega spell hit. Her skeleton was still in the room. She had been killed by a chunk that fell from the ceiling. There wasn't much of her maintenance uniform, but it was enough to patch the hole in my environmental suit with the aid of Wonderglow, and there had been several bottles of the latter in the pony's toolbox, along with a wrench and a... (gasps) a screwdriver! There had also been a feebly locked medical box with a few healing bandages and a couple extra bobby pins, and a tin of Mintels. I stared at the tin for the longest time, fighting the urge to just go ahead and take one. Just one. It took effort to shut the box, leaving them inside. I relocked it. Never again. I was finally out of those damn shackles. I'd noticed that most of the other slaves weren't wearing them, so I was fairly certain I could get away with not wearing them. But I hadn't gotten them off myself. I suspected there wasn't any pony here with both the know-how and kindness to have helped me out. I really hated Philadelphia. The turret fire stopped. To be on the safe side... I shut them down completely before stepping out of the office. My pit buck said I had five to go, and I was out of ammo. I needed a plan. Moving back the way I had arrived, 
I tried unlocking the maintenance room I had been kept out of earlier. With any luck, there would be more magical spark packs inside. The door clicked open, but my streak of luck had ended. There were no magical spark packs, no weapons or ammo of any kind. Instead, there was the skeleton of a Pegasus pony who had locked himself inside, along with a now emptied bottle of buck and a case of painkillers. From the position of the skeleton and the disarray of the room, I suspected he died in severe convulsions, but hopefully unable to feel them. There are a few posters, well preserved, on the wall of this room that I'd never seen before. A rather fantastic poster for a Pegasus aerial acrobatics team called the Wonderbolts, whose bright blue uniforms were clearly copied from the darker, militaristic Shadowbolts design. Or was it the other way around? A framed newspaper article on the wall read, Wonderbolt's heroic attempt to free zebra captives leaves four dead. This morning, Princess Celestia announced the successful rescue of the 17 ponies held captive for two weeks by zebra gem pirates. The Wonderbolts, Equestria's greatest flyers, volunteered for the secret mission that sent them into zebra waters. However, success came at a grave cost, as four members of the elite Pegasus team was killed in the ensuing battle. Thankfully, none of the captives were killed, and only one received serious injury. Throughout this two-week crisis, the Zebra Caesar reportedly denounced the actions of the pirates and offered support to Princess Celestia, but he denied permission for equestrian ponies to enter Zebra territories, claiming it would increase the existing tensions and insisting that his army's intelligence indicated that the pirates were operating in international seas. The Zebra Caesar continues to disavow any knowledge to where the pirate's ship had anchored. Princess Celestia claims that the Wonderbolt operation in Zebra territory was the result of a happy miscommunication and apologised personally to the Caesar. The article clearly predated the beginning of the war. One more thing to think about later. When I wasn't trying to find a way to disintegrate parasprites without magical energy weapons or incinerate them without fire. The maintenance room included a workbench and a variety of odds and ends, including the Buck's Wonderbolt's lunchbox and a sack filled with Sunpony's badly decayed porn collection, mostly old copies of Wingboner magazine. I managed not to look. No, really. Okay, maybe just a little. Pegasus mares are kinda exotic, after all. Inspiration struck. I dumped out the magazines and set the sack aside. Then, I emptied the lunchbox of the muck that the food inside had rotted into. I brought up the schematic that Ditsy Doo had given me as a gift. I didn't really expect a homemade mine would be any good against Parasprites, but that didn't mean I wouldn't find a use for one later. I was about to put my new mine into the sack when I had another idea. I couldn't set the damn pony-eating bugs on fire inside the building, but... Half an hour later, I trotted out of the printing house, a sack full of angry parasprites floating next to me. Oh, pyrolites! I sing-songed with a smile. Mr Shiny was impressed, and I felt myself flush with pride, only for that pride to be swiftly followed by shame and anger that I was letting myself feel happy about slave work, and worse... Thankful to one of the slavers for praising me. The reward for my efforts was to have the magical energy gun taken from me. But in reward, he offered me a set of ragged slave barding. It offered little protection, but it was better than none. And it would help against the chilly nights. The former wearer, according to Mr Shiny, was no longer able to use it due to decapitation. 
Working swiftly did not lead to rest, but to more work. I was assigned to the scrapyard for the rest of the day. I spent all of ten minutes getting instructions on the use of a gruesome-looking auto-axe before the yard foreman, a slave himself, decided he just didn't want such a dangerous tool in the hooves of such a small and weak-looking mare. I pointed out that, as a unicorn, I was more than capable of wielding the metal-cutting saw regardless of my physical size or strength. In response, he put me to work gathering the bits of scrap that the other workers, slaves, damn it, were slicing off the old passenger wagons and the other sizable metal artefacts of the past. I trudged into the ear-splitting din of the scrapyard. Dozens of ponies were pitting those spinning, magically-edged blades against metal. At least a dozen more were on scrap collection duty. I looked up to see the slaver guards staring down at us, armed with battle saddles or assault carbines, keeping well out of range of the auto-axes. A daring unicorn could try to float one up at them, but she would be gunned down before she could kill more than one. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw the gorgeous yellow and green plumage of Pyolite as she circled. A Wonderbolt's lunchbox clutched in her talons before soaring out of sight. Smiling to myself a little, despite my dreary situation, I got to work. Enslaved ponies, crying out under the whips of the slavers, pulled wagons piled with scavenged metal into the steelyard for slicing. I was shocked when several ponies trudged wearily into the scrapyard, pulling a wagon laden with the massive gear-shaped steel door from a stable. My work was much easier than theirs thanks to my magic, and it afforded me the chance to speak with the other slaves. They were not a chatty bunch, quick to remind me that too much talk made the slavers nervous and was a quick way to get your tongue cut out. But I was still able to glean a few tidbits which convinced me that the only places likely to find either the schematics of the Rad Engine or Red Eye's research into bypass spells were the Alpha Omega Hotel or the Ministry of Morale Hub. The Alpha Omega was being used for special housing. For the lower floors, this meant housing for pit fighters. Being on the fast track to a brutal death at the hooves of other slaves didn't come without compensations. A much nicer place to bed down, shorter work hours, and, if the rumours were true, access to a still. Who, or what, was housed in the upper falls was apparently a closely guarded secret. The only other place to get booze in Alla Philadelphia, one of the slaves claimed as she let her auto-axe cool down before going again at a three-yard section of what had once been a stable wall, is the Roma Bar, a slaver hangout on the other side of the wall. A shame. I decided that I could definitely use some apple whiskey. Stern hates to stuff. Says booze makes slavers stupid, and she ain't got use for stupid. The slave mare with a really strange accent chomped down on the bit of the auto-axe, kicking it on again, and started cutting. I hung around long enough to bundle the first chunks cut from the wall and floated them back to the waiting bins. Then I moved on. From the ponies willing to talk, everything about the comically barn-shaped MOM building was a mystery save from there was always a Pinkie Pie balloon anchored there, that Stern roosted in the upper tower and that Red Eye himself had private chambers somewhere within. I found myself speaking with another of the slaves, this time a unicorn buck with a cancerous eye and only three legs. The result of not an accident or cruelty, but a birth defect having been born to a tribe who had lived too close to the Philadelphia crater before the wall. Our conversation was interrupted when, one by one, the slaves paused their work to look up into the sky of black clouds. Several pointed. Many whispered. I turned my own head upwards, trying to spot the cause of the commotion. 
it wasn't hard to spot. A sky chariot was flying overhead, pulled by two griffins. Surrounding it was a wing of alicorns. Welp, the deformed buck muttered. Looks like red eyes here. I stood in the same lot where I had stood yesterday. The blood of the slaver executed by Stern still stained the ground. All around me, other slaves had gathered, pressing close. The rooftops around us were lined with griffins in talon armour. Stern took her favourite spot and stared out over us. Her anti-machine rifle was slung to her back, but I remembered the speed of her draw. The speakers fell silent, March of the Parasprites cutting off mid-song. A couple of the ponies behind me whinnied nervously. I spotted daff and blood in the crowd. Blood looked bored, inspecting her hoof. Daff looked grim. Then I finally saw him. Red Eye. Flanked by an escort of alicorns, the pony, who I had come to blame for a great deal of the equestrian wasteland's wrongness, walked up from a ramp on the right side of the building where Stern was perched. Red Eye was a strong, able-bodied earth pony stallion with a crimson coat and a few light scars around a blank flank where his cutie mark should have been. He had a jet-black mane and tail which were practically groomed, and he wore a black cape that was slung to droop off his right side. I could only see the left side of his body clearly as he strode towards the centre of the roof, but his left eye was distinctly blue. I wasn't sure what I had been expecting. Hell, I had been expecting an alicorn monster the size of a Pinkie Pie balloon, twisted and evil, radiating explosions of power, or something equally as absurd. Red Eye was just a pony. I could end this all now. I just needed something big and heavy. I could float it over his head and drop it. Even if the griffin spotted me, even if Stern gunned me down, I could accept that, just so long as I could take him with me. One of the alicorns looked out over the crowd, her eyes quickly finding me. She spread her wings and took to the air, keeping a protective watch. Damn it, they remembered, and they weren't going to let me pull the same trick twice. I realised with a chill that the alicorns knew I was here and so did their goddess, which, I suspected, meant Red Eye did too. This was a stupid plan. In the middle of the roof was a strip of railing which once held a sign. Red Eye trot up to it, the other two alicorns taking positions either side of him. He turned towards us, putting his forehooves up spread out on the railing as he stared down. I gasped, my words suddenly lurching out from under my hooves. Workers, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Red Eye was even more charismatic in person, his words oily smooth and devilishly persuasive, but I was barely hearing them, my gaze transfixed on the red glow that came out of the metal sheath around what should have been his right eye socket. A cyber pony? Red Eye was a cyber pony. I was staring in the face of a level of technological advancement the sword way beyond terminals and sprite bots. Red Eye had cybernetic implants. How? Where did he get them? When did that sort of technology even become possible? My gaze travelled down his body, searching for other signs of augmentation, and locked upon his right foreleg. Red Eye was wearing a pit buck. Red Eye was a stable dweller. I have demanded a lot from you in the name of future. 
Red-Eye was saying as I shook myself out of my utter stupor. The crimson cyber-augmented stallion even wore his pitbuck on his right foreleg, which was uncommon. Just like me. But I would not call for anything from you that I would not demand from myself, Red-Eye claimed, looking over us. The red beam of that targeting eye flashed as it swept over me. As you can see, I was gifted, though through no merit of my own, with a privileged upbringing that the good ponies of our equestrian wasteland could only dream of. I lived in a stable where such luxuries as safety, food and clean water were taken for granted. Our water talisman alone could have given life-sustaining nourishment to thousands. Instead, it was being used for frivolous joys, like our atrium's fountain. He frowned, shaking his head. Observe my eye. My stable offered medical and technological advancements far in excess of even pre-war civilization. Ponies in the highest ranks of stable tech conspired to make my stable an experiment in rulership through the Earth Pony Way. Celestia suckle me. Stable 2 had always known a unicorn overmare. I tried to imagine a stable under Earth Pony rule and driven by the same push for progress and industry that dominated the thinking of the Ministry of Technology. What could they accomplish over 200 years of isolation? Well, cybernetic implants for one. I realised I had lost track of Red Eye's speech and chided myself for not paying closer attention now that he was actually right in front of me. I couldn't help the oozing sense that I was looking into a dark and supremely fucked up mirror. Saw the equestrian wasteland for what it is. But more than that, I saw what it should be, and what it could be again. That night, for the first time, the goddess whispered to me. I found myself resisting a face hoof. The idea that the Alicorn's goddess was speaking to Red Eye or at least that he could be under that impression, made a lot more sense. I knew a pony in Stable 2 who would sometimes pick up the stable broadcast through metalwork in his jaw. Celestia only knew that all that wet wear in Red Eye's head was capable of receiving, by intentional design or otherwise. The goddess communicated telepathically with the Alicorns. Was she communicating with him too, or was he just picking up stray signals? Preacher had suggested to Velvet Remedy the red-eye was getting garbled messages. And the first thing that she showed me was how wrong my stable's teachings were. How actually repulsive are beliefs in Earth Pony supremacy. No breed of pony is greater than another. We are all slaves to the equestrian wasteland, and it is only through our work that we can be free. As Red-Eye talked... I remembered the twisted versions of stories and history that I had seen in Stable 24, even the tale of the Mare in the Moon, the tale of Princess Luna's thousand-year fall to madness as Nightmare Moon, a madness she had been rescued from by the group of friends who Luna had subsequently chosen to be the mayors of her ministries, had been altered into the tale of a fallen prince. I could only guess if this is what Stable Tech had done to ensure a male-dominated experiment in that stable the teachings in Red-Eye's stable would have been. But that work is worthless unless it is shared. Until we are all free, 
none of us are truly free, nor do we deserve to be. Red Eye glanced away, looking strangely ashamed. Then, with a fierceness I hadn't expected, he told us, And that is why my stable was the first to be dismantled. Its doors and supports torn out and melted down. Its concrete walls and floors cut apart to make the foundation stones of the cathedral. The fortress we are building on the site of my former home. To be the capital of our new Equestria. And the home of our living goddess. I reeled. The ponies of my home were the first to join the army of the children of unity. Or in the cases of many... They became the first workers in these very yards where you work today. I saw the bounty of our stable shared, the water talisman given to a struggling town, which now knows the joy of clean and pure water. I focused the great minds of our best science ponies towards the task of coming new age. The only thing that remains of my home is the cloak I wear as a reminder, Red Eye claimed. "'smiling down at us. "'Everything I have ever had, I have given, as you do today.' "'His eyes, both mechanical and natural, looked over the ponies in the crowd. "'His voice was paternal. "'And I could not be prouder of all of you.' "'He glanced back at Stern. "'The black-coloured griffin nodded her white-feathered head, "'but her beak twisted into a scowl of dislike the moment he turned away.' The alicorn in the air continued to circle, keeping her eyes out for unidentified floating objects. Looking to us again, bathing us in his smile beneath the slate-coloured clouds, Red Eye announced, And so I come bringing the gift of respite. Tomorrow shall be a day of rest. None shall labour. Furthermore, the bounty of the Roma Bar stills will be made freely available to you. For those who wish to taste the finest horse whiskey Philadelphia has to offer. The words of the leader of our slavers was met with clopping applause and shouts of joy. It was insanity. The gratitude of the crowd made as much sense as our oatmeal. I looked around and found a few ponies who were not celebrating. One of them was Daff, although blood seemed to be cheering for both of them. Red Eye grinned kindly, then waved his hoof for quiet. The roars and stomping died away uneasily, as if strangled. And I have also arranged for entertainment. Two full events in the pit, with seating for every pony to enjoy. He looked down over us. That is, of course, if I can get some volunteers. The quiet became a hard silence. The slave ponies looked to each other. And we have one... Red Eye announced as he looked into the crowd. Any more? I looked around to see which pony had volunteered for the blood sport. Daff was holding up a hoof. Blood was staring at him in shock. Then slowly, in a show of companionship that I thought beyond the vicious ex-raider mare, Blood stood next to the piss-coloured stallion and raised her own hoof, lowering her head to sigh. Fuck you, Daffodil, she muttered. I hate you so much. Red Eye's voice counted out, That's two! Everything went to hell about an hour after Red Eye's speech. I was making my way back towards the bumper plough structure when a mare's scream jolted me into a run. 
The scream was coming from inside a building whose decaying paint job proclaimed, The Philadelphia Fun Bar Mirror Maze and Wacky House of Reflections! The mayor screamed again, and I charged inside. The interior of the building was dark and dusty, the air filled with moats, the floor covered in shattered glass. I levitated myself a little as I moved, not wanting to cut my hooves. This place was a maze, just as advertised, but very few of the mirror frames held anything more than a few nasty shards jutting against their backboards. Old graffiti suggested that a raider band had once used this place for fun of their own design. No! Get off me! The mayor cried out, and I skidded to a stop as I recognised the voice. It was blood. I heard laughter and a buck's voice, husky and cruel, ask, Now, why shouldn't you have some fun tonight? It's only right, seeing that you're going to die in the pit tomorrow. I heard a grunt that sounded like daff, and the sound of wood impacting pony flesh. I trotted forward until I caught the scene reflected in the remaining third of a shattered mirror. Two slave master ponies had blood pressed back against a wall. I could see blood flowing from her back where the jagged fragments of the mirror behind her were cutting into her tail and flanks. One of the slavers was a unicorn, and he was floating a lever-action shotgun at Blood's face as he pressed lewdly against her. The buck next to him covered her with a sawed-off shotgun, almost identical to the first firearm I had ever seen. Three more slavers were piled on Daff. One, a mare, was trying to beat him into submission with the butt of her rifle. My heart flared with rage. I felt my nerves ignite. A pony in my head tried to remind me that I couldn't start killing slavers, that my only chance to get at Red Eye required keeping a low profile until I could get close, that I still had a lot of work to do, that I really didn't want to save that sadistic bitch and her rapist buck friend anyway. What the hell was I doing risking my life? Risking everything for them? And absolutely none of that mattered, as the slavers learned when the glare from my horn was matched by the light that flooded over hundreds of deadly sharp shards of mirrored glass. The slaver pony with a sawed-off shotgun managed to get a shot off before the room became a quasinart. He missed. The particularly bloody murder of five slavers was not going unnoticed. The one shot fired had drawn attention, and now I was running through the maze, trying desperately to figure my way out while slaver guards in heavy barding and battle saddles gave chase. I'd left Blood and Daff alive in shock. The corridor decorated with a scene so bloody it would have made raiders envious. I'd snatched up the lever-action shotgun and the mare's rifle, but I hadn't had time to search the remains. I only had the ammo currently in the firearms. According to my eyes forward sparkle, that wasn't much. Two shots in the shotgun, twelve in the rifle. Red marks on my EFS compass told me that two more guards were ahead of me. They undoubtedly had the building surrounded outside. My only hope was to get out of here and change terrain before there was enough time for most of the closest slaver's forces to be brought to bear. I wished I'd chosen to bring the stealth buck after all. The red marks moved weaving through the maze, drawing closer. I crouched down, hiding, my shotgun at the ready. The moment the first guard's head appeared in the corridor, I slid into sats and opened fire. A slaver guard went down hard, bleeding from a hole torn in her throat. The second was right behind her. I put the only other shot I had into her face, centred upon her left eye. Then I discarded the lever-action shotgun and galloped ahead. I heard shouts and the galloping sounds of armour-shod hooves on shattered glass behind me. 
Ahead, I spotted an open doorway, twilight pouring in around the slaver pony position there. She was a unicorn and was floating a riot shield in front of her as she finished setting up a chain gun at the entrance. Fuck! I dove into another passage and back toward the dead end as I weighed my options. The slavers behind me were getting closer. I bumped into the mirror behind me, a splash of cold washing over my body from the touch. I turned, looking into the only fully intact mirror in the House of Wacky Reflections, and froze. Staring back at me was me, but not me. The little pip staring back at me was wearing cobbled-together raider armour. She was shot to hell, dying, her body giving out as she glared at me in a swiftly deteriorating battle stance, her gaze daring me to make another move. I shrank back in horror, turned and ran, right into the path of the chain gun. I would have been bloody giblets if my sudden appearance hadn't completely surprised the unicorn mare. The moment it took her to recover was enough for me to telekinetically grab the gun and spin it around, opening fire. The riot shield was sorely insufficient for its rather awesome firepower. I paused a moment in a futile attempt to pull the chain gun off its mounting and take it with me, then dashed out the door. A sniper in one of the Pinkie Pie balloons took a shot. The bullet whizzed past me, tearing into a ruined popcorn cart. I started weaving, making myself as difficult to target as possible. I needed someplace safe, preferably someplace high. It was time to call Calamity. This whole plan was a bust. A griffin swooped overhead, strafing me with a submachine gun. I changed course, hoping I wasn't being corralled. I was. The path in front of me dead-ended at the wrought iron fence that surrounded the amusement park. They had manoeuvred me into a trap. At least that was their intention. As I galloped past an overturned confectionery stand, Pinkie Pie's Pink Pies, I magically scooped up a dozen scattered pythons, floating them ahead of me. I levitated them each higher than the last, forming stepping stairs, wrapping myself with a levitation field to virtually negate my own weight. I ran up the stairway of pythons and leapt over the fence. The Pinkie Pie Balloon Sniper fired again, putting a hole in the last tin just as my hoof left it. The griffin turned and continued the chase, but at least for the moment, I had reduced my opponents to two. I dove, rolling, and brought up my targeting spell, unleashing half the bullets from the rifle into the griffin's armoured underbelly as she flew over me. The talent armour turned out to be very good. She was not dead, not even bloodied, but the impact knocked the wind out of her, driving her to land roughly. I rolled back to my hooves as another sniper shot struck the ground right where my head had been. I needed to get out from under the sniper pony. She was no calamity, but she was a frighteningly good shot, and it would only take one hit. I ran for the nearest intact building, firing the last of my bullets into the two guard ponies standing watch in front of it. I tossed the rifle, telekinetically scooping up one of the guard's automatic pistols as a replacement, and burst through the front doors of the Alpha Omega Hotel. The hotel, which had once hosted the Summer Sun Celebration, had seen better centuries. The aura of ruined opulence clung to the interior like its faded and peeling wallpaper. The air was dingy and filled with a little moat of dust and decay. Small rains of plaster occasionally fell from cracks in the ceiling. The hotel was home to ponies who knew they were on a glorified death row. Ponies sat along the bar, drinking their night away. 
knowing that tomorrow most of them would be slaughtered in a bloody spectacle for the amusement of the crowds. Crowds full of fellow slaves, who could somehow look into the pit and not see themselves, who could look and actually cheer. My heart felt sick as I walked quickly through the small throng of silent slave ponies. They glanced my way briefly, if at all. They didn't care. Why should they? We were, apparently, incapable of caring about each other. I brushed dampness from my eyes and looked for the stairs. If I could make it to the roof, I could call Calamity and get the hell out of here. I made my way up the Alpha Omega, hooves plodding on rotting carpet. My EFS was picking up a host of friendly marks, but no sign of any pony, or griffin, who was hostile. I passed a painting of Celestia standing gracefully in what looked like a grand ballroom, a kind smile on her face, surrounded by colourful ponies in the fever of a party, the summer sun celebration in full swing. The painting was greying from age and dust. Goddesses, this is a depressing place. I muttered, almost wishing for more guards to come charging up behind me, if only so adrenaline would shield me from the blanket of despair that was beginning to smother me. Why weren't they? I should have all of Stern's armies on my tail by now. It's not like that sniper didn't see where I went. Maybe they considered me trapped. But even then, I can't imagine that they would just sit back and let me make a home in here. Why weren't they coming in? I found the next flight of stairs and started up. I was just clearing the top when all the friendly lights on my EFS started turning red. I was picking up dozens of hostiles now. Far too many. The lights blurred together, making it impossible to identify the positions of individual opponents. I floated up the automatic pistol and crouched low, hoping I could sneak past most of them. The door opened, not by my horn or hoof, but by the telekinetic pull of a unicorn pony on the other side. I immediately slid into Sats, targeting the colt before he even saw me, and froze again. A colt? The child, who was floating a single-shot shotgun next to him, inexpertly, wasn't even old enough to have a cutie mark. Behind him, I saw other children, young fillies and colts, all looking well-nourished, well-cared for, and annoyingly well-armed. The room itself was brightly lit and painted in cheery colours. The worst of the cracks had been repaired, I suspected by magic, and the air was considerably cleaner. Unlike every other building used by either slaves or slavers, this floor had been restored to a fair reflection of its former glory. My eyes widened further as I spotted what was clearly a schoolroom through the doorway opposite this one. Red-Eye's words echoed through my head. Our nation's young ones are, and always have been, my highest priority. All that we sacrifice, we do for them, to give them a better place. The scene before my eyes was simultaneously wonderful and horrifying. Young children, ripped from the homes of their families and given to the care of loving, approved mares and stallions. Their real families were dying in the city below, trapped and enslaved behind the wall, while they themselves were being given the best possible care, probably the best possible life in the equestrian wasteland. And they were being taught education, indoctrination. Of course they loved him. They would be ready to kill for him. Red Eye was building schools, and he was about to have the ability to print his own textbooks. This scene was going to be repeated everywhere. I couldn't do it. I killed Sats. I couldn't sneak past all of them, and I just couldn't.
I just couldn't fight them. Hey! The colt called down the stairs. She's up here! I turned to flee, only to see a midnight blue alicorn moving silently up the stairs towards me. I would have face-hoofed if I had been given the chance. I had actually wondered why no one was coming in after me. By the goddesses, how could I have forgotten that some of these monsters can actually turn invisible? The alicorn's horn was glowing. A metal apple floated towards me. The pin pulled. The alicorn would survive, but even if I did, the colt next to me would not. If there was time, I might have stopped to wonder why the alicorn would threaten a child if they were so clearly precious to Redeye. But there was no time. Instinctively, I lashed out with my magic, trying to knock the grenade away. I realised my mistake as the world started to slip away from me. The last thing I saw in this world was the alicorn drop the illusion that surrounded the memory orb. Everything shot into almost brutal sharpness. Colours were colourful. The lines around objects almost vibrant. The sunlight was sunnier than I had ever imagined it could be. Bright and warm and glorious beyond belief. I could smell the bush I was standing behind. The flowers nearby. The grass. I could smell the two ponies I was watching. The sweat on Applejack would have made me stir in recently wounded places had this been my own body. It was not, however, a fact to which I was hyper aware. I could feel a slight burning on my left forehoof, as if I'd recently touched a hot stove. I had an itch on my cheek, an odd pain in my hind leg that was barely noticeable, a tingle along my back. There was a familiar and delicious peppermint taste on my tongue. Oh no. With dawning horror, I realised that my pony host was high on mintals. Oh please no, I can't take this. The effects were nowhere near as pronounced. I was getting the heightened perceptions, but none of the other effects. Still, it was too comfortable, too alluring. Howdy Fluttershy, Applejack said, greeting her friend with a smile as the yellow pegasus landed gently on the grass, as if worried about hurting it. Hello, Applejack, the pegasus said meekly. So, what brings you about these parts? Well, the shy pegasus looked down, crossing one leg over the other. I, um, that is... Applejack rolled her eyes. Good gravy, girl. Spit it out already. Is something wrong? The Pegasus took a deep breath and then said in a rush, Are you looking for a close mare friend? Because if you are, we could, um, you know... She paused, all too obviously having no clue what good mare friends did in the privacy of their own beds. My host stifled a giggle as Applejack's eyes went wide. Then she scowled trotting past the deeply blushing Pegasus to slam her head repeatedly against a tree. When she finished, she turned on Fluttershy. All right, that's enough. What is it with all my friends hidden on me? Pretending I'm a filly fooler. Y'all know better. And y'all are straight. She took a step forward. Fluttershy eeped and took one back. Fluttershy, I know you. So be straight with me. The pun was probably not intended. Well... Did Rainbow Dash put you up to this? Applejack demanded. Oh! Fluttershy squeaked but shook her head. No. Applejack looked dubious. So you're saying you just thought this up all on your lonesome? Fluttershy shook her head. So Rainbow Dash did put you up to it? No. She insisted softly. My host began to move, silently creeping out from behind the bush. But some pony did? Applejack sussed out. 
her yellow friend nodded. Ho! My host had moved up behind Applejack so quickly and stealthily, even I hadn't seen it happen. Still, it bewildered me how we could be standing this close, and neither of the ponies seemed to notice us. Were we invisible? It certainly wouldn't be the first time I had found myself in a magically hidden being who was spying on the Ministry Mares, but I was clearly in an Earth Pony. Applejack turned around only to find herself nose-to-nose with my host. Spooked, she jumped away so fast she toppled onto her back. Pinkie Pie! Hiya! I felt my muzzle say, hearing the words in a high-pitched but pretty voice. Oh, you caught me! One tarnation her! The blonde-maned orange pony stopped, then face-hoofed while still lying on her back, in a most undignified position. Yo, this has all been one of your and Rainbow Dash's practical jokes, ain't it? Yep! I heard myself say happily as I began to bounce. Bounce! Applejack pulled herself back onto her hooves, staring at me and my host crossly. Care if I ask why? Well, you've been a totally mopey pony since the funeral! Of course I have! Applejack shot. I buried my brother! And you've been working really, really hard! Pinkie Pie ploughed on. And you haven't been getting out! Or going to parties! Or seeing your friends! And you haven't even talked to a buck in, like, forever! Applejack huffed. How are John Nala five? She stopped abruptly, realising just how stupid a question that was considering who she was asking. Fluttershy had slipped back a ways, almost hiding. And you're all worked up and stressed and you're going to burn yourself out if you aren't careful. And you, like, really, really need to get laid. Applejack hung her head. Pinkie Pie was incorrigible at best. This ain't going to end till I get myself a buck friend, is it? Nope! Pinkie Pie announced bouncily. How the hell could she bounce on all hooves like that? I was inside her, and I still couldn't figure it out. Well, would it help if there's a buck I've had my eye on? Pinkie Pie stopped bouncing and stared off into space. The itch on her cheek had migrated to her chin. She looked back to Applejack. Yep, that's the truth! But Itchy Chin says you haven't told him yet. You gotta talk to him! Applejack sighed. And if I do, this nonsense stops. I watched the world rock as Pinkie Pie nodded enthusiastically. My host started chanting, Do it! Rambunctiously as she bounced in circles around Applejack. Fine! Applejack reached out a hoof and stopped Pinkie Pie. On one condition. What? Y'all gotta swear. Applejack turned to look at Fluttershy. Both of ya. The Rainbow Dash don't hear a word about this. But... Pinkie Pie started. If Rainbow Dash doesn't know, how will she know that it's time to stop the prank, silly? I can deal with it from Rainbow, Applejack said sternly. At least now that I know where it's coming from. But this possible bug friend of mine, well, he's got a kind of funny name. And I think Rainbow might not be able to keep herself from messing things up. Wow, that came out badly. Applejack seemed to realise it too. Look, I'll tell him myself when I'm ready. Not before. She looked at her two friends. Now y'all Pinkie Pie swear it. Pinkie Pie swear? My host's reaction was immediate. I struggled to keep track of the odd motions, which ended with sticking a hoof in my eye, that accompanied the little sing-song that Pinkie Pie and Fluttershy managed to do in perfect synchronicity. Cross my heart and hope to fly, stick a cupcake in my eye! Applejack breathed a sigh of relief. The three friends began to walk, my host falling in slowly behind. 
Oh, there it is again! Applejack and Fluttershy both stopped, looking back. There what is? Burning Hoof means little bibs watching me! Pinkie Pie blurted out impossibly. Or will be watching me! I'm not sure yet! She bounced after her friends. Who's little bib? The furnace pits! Stern suggested, glaring at me. I was bound and shackled to the floor, and if that was not enough, two green-coated alicorns stood frozen beside me, trapping me inside a shield. Not only had I done most of the things that Stern considered a death sentence, I had done them with aggressive results. I had still failed, but she took the time to name each slaver I managed to kill before my inevitable capture. No, said Red Eye, eliciting a look of shock and displeasure from the griffin. The cybernetically augmented stallion walked up to face me. I'm feeling particularly generous today. I doubted I would much care for his definition of generosity, but the horrific tale of a pony being devoured from inside by an ever-growing number of parasprites left me thankful all the same. Addressing me directly, Red-Eye asked, Do you think I am a monster? Bluntly, I answered, Yes! He shrugged. Because, of course, I am. And you, stable-dweller, can probably see it more clearly than most. Because you and I are a lot alike, are we not? Not even slightly! I hissed, lying through my teeth. Red-Eye chuckled. I've heard of your exploits. I think we are more the same than you would like. You've just had it easy so far. Enraged, I spat. Easy? Do you think what I've been through out here has been easy? Red-Eye gave me an almost fatherly smile. The fact that you still stand there and judge me tells me so. You have had hardships, I am sure. But you've never been forced to give up your principles for the greater good. To sacrifice yourself and become a monster because it was the right thing to do. Oh, how I disagreed. You couldn't even do it to escape, he noted. For which, by the way, I am very grateful. Had you harmed a hair on even one of those children? He paused, then simply said, Thank you. Red-Eye turned towards Stern. His cape fell into view, a rough rectangle made from the stable security barding. The number 101 was visible in yellow against the black cloth. Take her back downstairs and keep her under shield. Tomorrow, she fights in the pit. Lined up in the darkness with five other ponies, I spent an hour rummaging through the recorded messages of Miss Periwinkle. Most were worthless, but one was actually from a ministry mayor, and not the one I had been expecting. Dear Miss Periwinkle, the voice began. I found it very odd to hear an audio message addressed like it was a letter. It was a pleasure to hear from you again. The new posters for the libraries are absolutely perfect. I hope it will not be a burden to have 200 produced by next week. I also have a more delicate matter to ask you about. Let me preface this by saying that for decades now, ever since she taught me about her gem-finding spell, Rarity and I have gotten together at regular intervals to swap magical spells. I must admit, and please believe me, I do not say this to brag, it has been a long time since she brought anything that I haven't already learned myself. That is, until three days ago. I was thrilled to see that she had learned a trick I had never seen before, 
she had enchanted a small mirror. To look into it, you would see a reflection, just as any other mirror. But if you touched it, or focused your magic on it, then a spell within the mirror took, well, the way she put it, the mirror took a picture of your soul. Then a second enchantment allowed the mirror to show that image. As Rarity told me, the mirror could show you what you looked like on the outside, or on the inside. I must admit, I wasn't ready for what I saw, and I'm still not sure about it, but that's personal. Rather, I wanted to ask you if you could give me any clue as to where Rarity may have learned enchantments like that. I know Rarity would refashion any magical spell until it was customised to her wishes, but honestly, I've been scouring my books, and I've found nothing that even remotely resembles these spells. I know you have worked with her closely over the last few months, so I hoped you might have an idea. Also, it's hardly worth mentioning, but the spell felt cold, not like rarity spells at all. Anyway, this is just a matter of rampant curiosity, and I ask you that you please not mention this to her. But if you have any idea, I really would appreciate it if you could let me know. Your friend, Twilight Sparkle. I sat in silent darkness with five other marked souls and waited. The noise outside told me that the seating around the arena was quickly filling. I heard Stern, her voice magnified over the speakers, welcoming every pony to the bloody show. I heard hooves pounding bleachers in applause. My face twisted in disgust. How could they? This was sick. Earlier, a slave master pony had attached a sheet to my flank, covering my cutie mark. She had snarled and whispered to me that her fondest desires that my suffering be deep and excruciating and very slow. She had known one of the rapist slavers. The only reason I survived being numbered was because Stern was watching. But she still got away with covering the bottom side of the sheet with some sort of stinging powder that was making it hard for me to concentrate. I was number three. Blood and Daff were numbers one and two, respectively. They sat closest to the gate, looking out at the arena. A large plot of broken cement underneath a cage from which several barrels were suspended. I could see pressure plates set up like mines all over. Neither of them had spoken to me, going out of their way to ignore my existence. I couldn't decide whether to be hurt or relieved. Used to be an ice skating rink. The blue-coloured buck with number four on his flank said conversationally, Apparently, the owner of a fun farm had a thing for ice skating. Just be thankful that Red Eye removed the water talisman and put it to better use. These fights are brutal enough without having to do them on ice. I tried to imagine that and just couldn't. Outside the crowds began to chant for the first fight, their hoof stomps falling into a unity that would make the goddess proud. Part of me wanted to hurt them, and these were the ponies I was trying to save. Aye, consider yourself lucky. The blue buck joked. Being number three ain't bad. Has anybody told you how these things work? I shook my head. The roar outside rose to a crescendo. There was a loud buzz, then a clanging sound as the gate was levitated up by a unicorn no pony inside could see. Round one! From the red gate, all the way from the rock farms, we have Cinderblock. This is his second event, so you know he's got some hooves on him. And from the black gate... She's tough. She's mean. She's a raider with a body count higher than the spikes in her hair. It's blood. Blood got up, looking dejectedly at the open gate for a moment. 
then held her head up and trotted out, putting on a brave face that I didn't believe even a little bit. You see, number four was telling me, there are two gates. We're Blackgate. Each gate has six fires, randomly numbered. If you survive your first round, you'll be pitted against the next opponent from the red gate. Event lasts till all the opponents from one gate are dead. The survivors from the other gate live to fight in the next event. I looked at blood and winced. So basically it sucks to be number one. I couldn't believe I was feeling sympathy for the vile raider mare. Well, it's a give and take, number four said. I looked at him quizzically. I mean, true. If you're high enough number, it's possible you won't have to fight at all. And any pony who survives six events is set free. Doesn't matter if he actually fought or not. I got the feeling that number four had made it through at least one event just that way. You even get a spot in Red Eye's army, he added enthusiastically. I considered pointing out to him the sort of position Red Eye would likely appoint him to if he ever won a fight, but I kept my muzzle shut. The sudden roar of the crowd snapped my attention back to the arena. Blood was down, soaking in a pool of her own, well, blood. Cinderblock, an athletic-looking light grey buck, was rearing his hooves in victory. The fight had lasted seconds. My heart sank. What was the benefit of being first again? I asked dully. Number four leaned close, apparently unable to comprehend personal space. Well, you see those barrels, and you see those plates. I nodded to each. Step on a plate, the barrel above drops. Now the barrels are full of nasty stuff, usually radioactive goo. But sometimes it's something worse. I heard they once had them filled with tainted ooze. I shuddered looking up at the cage that had now been constructed over the arena, and the barrels that hung from it. A few griffins flew high above, watching the show with binoculars or through rifle scopes. My eyes caught a swinging door built into the cage, closed by a simple padlock. Round two! From the Black Gate, we have Daffodil! The crowd broke into snickers and chortles as Daff got up and stepped out into the arena. He took one look at the bloody corpse of his companion and then locked Cinderblock with a hard stare that I could almost feel from behind him. Daffodil charged the light grey pony. Cinderblock ran, not towards him, but towards one of the pressure plates. The barrel above didn't exactly drop. Rather, as the grey pony raced across the plate, the underside of the barrel swung open, and a dozen mines rained down, hitting the ground and bouncing in all directions. Daff changed direction with a deftness I would not have expected. The mines were rigged for a fast detonation, only beeping once before exploding in a flash of smoke and shrapnel. Cinderblock had almost been fast enough, but his hind legs were peppered and torn as he was flung forward. He was still struggling to get back onto his bleeding legs when Daff reached him. I knew how hard those hooves hit, but seeing this, I suspected that Daff had held back when he bucked the living fuck out of me, even with his last low blow. The crowd beat their hooves and cried out for more as Daff pummeled the other buck, first breaking his legs, then every other bone he could before killing him. I tasted bile. Mines, number four mused. Well, that's a new one. I shot him a dark look. Hey, like I was saying, those barrels have nasty things, but they also always have a weapon or two in them. So if you're first, you get your pick of the prizes, and if you go last, well... You go up against an opponent with their choice of weapons. In an arena filled with ooze and goddess knows what else, all you have are your hooves. Fight and last sucks. 
Round three! Announced after Daff had stopped brutalizing Cinderblock and started just beating a dead pony. From the Black Gate, we still have Daffodil. After a surprising and entertaining first performance, I don't think any of you ponies are snickering in his name now, are you? The crowd applauded the crimson-splattered buck, whose angry flower cutie mark was now partially visible behind his number two patch, which was sagging and wet with Cinderblock's lifeblood. And now, the one I know you've all been waiting for. The crowd hushed with gleeful anticipation. From the Red Gate, she's demonic, she's exotic, and she's never lost a fight. Give it up for our champion, four events running, Zenith. My first thought, struck in my brain at the word exotic, was a Pegasus mare. The idea of facing a flying opponent in this arena was terrifying. And if she was as good as advertised, I would be facing her as soon as she finished killing Daff. The red gate opened and Zenith stepped out into the arena to an absolute thunderous, overwhelming applause. From her grim expression, she wasn't enjoying it one bit. From the look she gave Daff, she was going to kill him. She knew it, and it brought her no pleasure at all. From her lack of wings, she wasn't a pegasus. From her stripes, she wasn't even a pony. She was a zebra. Footnote, level up. New perk, cooler under fire. You regenerate action points faster. But how much faster? You guessed it, 20% faster. Slavery always left a bad taste in my mouth. A load of my folks got carted off by the local slaver gang before I could have done anything about it. That wasn't anything but a cult. Fucks didn't bother taking me. I'm pretty sure they ended up in Philadelphia. Lucky enough to be taken in by the zebras round here. I don't like talking about it. Music time! Here's Whiskey by Greenhome. Enjoy, people. Sent the whiskey when they saw the trouble coming. Oh, they should have just sent the whiskey, then there wouldn't be a running. The times are tough and things are bad, so why be dumb and risky when you see the trouble come? You better just send the whiskey. 